Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 277 Startup Thinking and Buddhist Lineage. We're joined this week by Lawrence Levy, former CFO and board member at Pixar Animation Studios, to speak about his time working at Pixar with Steve Jobs and how he's applying that experience to his new role with the progressive Buddhist organization, the Juniper Foundation. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Rohan Gunatilika hosting today, and I'm delighted to have joining us Lawrence Levy, co-founder of Juniper Foundation. Lawrence, great to have you. Thanks, Rohan. It's great to be here. And just a bit of uh, context about Lawrence and Juniper. Juniper is an organization based out of Redwood City in the Bay Area around San Francisco, and it's a Buddhist organization uh, based around the, the teaching of uh, Segyo Rinpoche, who's a uh, Brazilian-born teacher in the Tibetan tradition. And for the Tibetan Buddhist geeks out there, he's head of the Segyo lineage, which is part of the, the Gelug school. Now, Lawrence, uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, talking a lot more about Juniper and its work and uh, its future. I've, I've, I hear that it's just 10 years old, just recently, just this last week. That's right. It was... Ten years ago, last Monday, that we officially started what became Juniper. Brilliant. So we look forward to getting into that. But um, as well as your work with Juniper, you have had an extraordinary career in business. I see that, like myself, you were born in London but moved to uh, the U.S. as a teenager and started with a as a career in law. That's right. Is that, is that right? And the, um, my understanding is that you started to practice more with technology companies and became more involved in the Silicon Valley scene during the 80s. That's right. In 1985, I moved out to Silicon Valley uh, with my wife and our baby, and I uh, got started at uh, one of the prominent technology law firms out here doing technology transactions for all kinds of startup companies. So it was a really good time to be practicing law out here, actually. Sure, and um, I guess the, from a historical perspective, the company that you became involved with, which in, in, in a way has touched, I guess I was thinking about this earlier today, that uh, you ended up working for Pixar, which is a company that probably touched the lives of every Buddhist Geeks listener in its, in its time. So is it true that you were personally headhunted by Steve Jobs to join Pixar? Uh, yes, it is true, actually. I, I was proud of Pixar. I had left my career as a lawyer and had gone to work actually for one of my clients, which was Electronics for Imaging, which was a startup uh, that is still around actually, but in the late 80s, it was a startup company. And that's where I kind of cut my teeth in uh, actually doing startups. And I had been there for several years and was thinking about what I might consider doing next. And around that time frame, I phone rang and I picked up the phone and it was Steve Jobs at the other end of the line. And he said that he'd seen my picture in the, the magazine one time and he'd heard about me and he thought that one day we would work together. And he was calling me to talk about this little company that he had that was called Pixar. 
Great. And so um, when you eventually joined, uh, it was the Pixar you joined or at that time was quite different to the one that we know now, obviously. Absolutely, it was. In fact, it's very interesting. At that time, you know, the, the world actually didn't even conceive of Pixar as an entertainment company. It was known as a really cool graphics technology company that made this rendering software that did this really neat animation, but didn't have a reputation at all as a as an entertainment or even a production company. And so when I went there in 1994, which was before the original Toy Story came out, my task was to figure out what it would take to turn Pixar uh, into a viable growing company. And that's what I spent my first year there doing. It came as, I wouldn't say a surprise, but uh, when it turned out that the strategic path for Pixar was going to involve entertainment, it was a little bit of a sort of a wake-up call because none of us at the time that were running Pixar, we didn't know the entertainment business. Uh, Steve and myself had kind of grown up in Silicon Valley. We knew software and hardware and semiconductors and, and that whole world. So we literally had to learn that business. Um, and so we spent a lot of time doing that. Great, and so so you left Pixar in two thousand. Um, I think that was was that after Toy Story two. I'm trying to remember when those came. Oh, it was out. later than that, actually. I think several of the first films had come out, okay. and so I left at a time. Yeah, Pixar was was well on its way by the by the time I left, and I stayed on the board. So I actually was with the company all the way until the sale to to Disney. But oh, wow. I okay. I did give give up my day to day responsibilities there in two thousand. Sure, and. Um, what, can, I, can I ask a little bit your sort of uh, spiritual interest at that time, or um, how did you end up co-founding a Buddhist organization? Was it was Buddhism, was Buddhism something that was part of your life during your time, your working time, or did it come to, did it come after you left the operational work at Pixar? I would say that formally it came afterward, but I certainly had a deep pulse that was. Um, very interested in that subject area. I had sort of studied all manner of religion and philosophy just privately on my own sure. uh, for some time. And I felt that there was something deep and important uh, to explore there and something that would sort of take me beyond the life that I had had. And uh, I just had this strong momentum to, to go and see what that was. And a window of opportunity opened up around the year 2000, more because... Pixar had become was in a really stable place, and the plan that we had put in place there several years ago was, you know, being executed upon, and the right people in place were to do it. So, you know, I felt that I could leave, the company would be in great standing, um, and then I could go and explore this this thing that I was interested in. So that's what I did. I literally took off, and I I spent the first year. I thought it would be maybe a sabbatical for a couple of years or something like that. Um, and I would say after that, though, I sort of quickly gravitated toward Buddhist philosophy and thinking. You were, you, were you looking at lots of other schools or just, just reading widely and exploring? Reading widely. I, was, I read widely in terms of um, religion and philosophy, both Eastern and Western. But I would say I had this kind of natural drawing, if you will, to you know, perhaps the Eastern mystical traditions or the Eastern philosophical traditions, and then that gravitated quickly toward uh, toward Buddhism. So it didn't take me long to sort of find that as a as a path that I wanted to go deeply into. And I knew and I felt at the time that one eventually, while it was okay to explore widely and learn a lot, and I gained a lot from that, that 
the the benefits that I understood would be available from engaging a path like this required sort of taking a deep dive into one area um, rather than just sort of staying on the surface. So um, I knew eventually I would do that. Sure. And was it around that time that you met Sergei Rimche? It was actually. I was. Uh, I had been working with a really well-known yoga scholar who was a great uh, writer on Indian philosophy and yoga philosophy, and he had been studying with Sergey Rinpoche, and he introduced us, and he introduced both my wife Hillary and myself actually to Sergey Rinpoche at the same time. And at that time, Rinpoche was uh, in Sebastopol, California, and he had this wonderful sort of Tibetan Buddhist temple there for for lack of a better word and so um and so we started to go up there pretty quickly and pretty regularly uh to study and and learn with him great and um what was it that attracted you to him was it the was it the introduction and just uh, wanting to to get deeper into into one particular path and it's just the circumstances came around at the right time yeah that's a good question you know i i think it wasn't as though, you know, when we met him, you know, sort of light bulbs went off and sure. did or anything like that. But there was something about him that was, he's very, um, he's very warm, he's very engaging. Um, he, he kind of has a way of relating with every person, no matter who you are. And so there was something about being with him that was both easy and comfortable and and we had a sense that this was the real thing. Um, you know, even though he was practicing in you know fairly traditional Tibetan way, he himself sort of was almost beyond that. He was teaching in a way that was really reaching people. Uh, and so it was just natural almost. It was easy. Sure. And it was if that was if it, if that was twelve years ago that you started practicing with him, and only ten years ago that you founded the organization. It was obviously quite quickly you decided you wanted to get involved or in uh, a new structure around his teaching or working with him. And so what was that initial process like of not only uh, being a student and learning very quickly, I'm sure, but also the sort of more administrative organizational side of things? Because they're quite two different, quite different things. That's true. Well, I think that's something that we began to understand that he, on the one hand, had this really strong momentum and interest to help uh, Westerners, um, you know, people of modern sensibility, understand this sort of esoteric body of Tibetan Buddhist teaching. So he had a, a, a strong drive to do that. And we on our side, and I speak for myself and the other co-founders of Juniper as well, uh, felt that the, the the Tibetan dimension of it could be frustrating because it was so culturally difficult and foreign for us. So, had uh, it, it felt too far away in a, in a in a way, and so we had a momentum to kind of how do we bring this closer to us? How do we make this more accessible to us? So, it turned out that we Rinpoche and students had this same drive, this same interest. How do we take the the core of this, the heart of this, and make it more accessible for Western people. I mean, Rinpoche's experience at the time was extraordinary. I mean, he he had studied for, you know, the better part of 20 or 25 years with some of uh, Tibetan Buddhism's finest masters, and they had recognized 
recognized him as a reincarnate Lama in sure. there. There's a really high Vajrayana lineage. The the Segu is about as prestigious as it could possibly be in in um, in Tibetan Buddhist um, circles, and he had been named a reincarnation of that lineage. So because of that, he had unbelievable access to the teachers and teachings, and he took it upon himself. I think he saw his mission for the better part of, I'm going to say, 25 years as gathering all of those teachings um, in an authentic way. I mean, you should see his library. It's incredible. It's, uh, um, he really has a um, um, probably one of the greatest collections of their texts and teachings and, and studied with their teachers. So he had a tremendous amount to offer. The question is, how are we going to bridge that, that sure. gap between what he had gained and what we wanted to do? And so I guess in a way, given how you started the founder of the organization, co-founded the organization fairly early into your training with him, in a way you were designing your training with the teacher. It was, it was a lot of, I guess I, I'm, just, I'm just interpreting, I'm trying to imagine myself in that situation where you're very much focused on creating, um, making the teachings more accessible, but also that's very much accessible for you as well as for others. Am I right? All right. Had I only known at the time, however, <laughs> uh, I, my experience in Silicon Valley, you know, what I learned in Silicon Valley is that going into startups requires a certain amount of naivety. If you really, truly understood all the risks going in, then no, Silicon Valley would still be cherry trees and apricot orchards because very few startups, I think, would get going. And for me, this was kind of like that. Although I would say it wasn't like that for Sergei Rinpoche. I think Sergei Rinpoche always understood precisely what it was he was getting into and what needed to be done. Uh, but for the rest of us, it was definitely part, you know, how can we make these 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 teachings accessible? The part that perhaps we didn't get as strongly is that at, at least half of that process was going to be our own training in it. Uh, and so, and that over time unfolded as Juniper got going. But Juniper actually got going by five of us, you know, getting together and talking to Segi Rinpoche and saying, look, if we want to take on a problem like this, we have to sit down and sort of analyze it. What is it that needs to be done? And so in the classic Silicon Valley style. Uh, we set up a room here in Palo Alto, California. We filled the room with whiteboards. Uh, and on January the 14th, 2003, we met there and we met for one month. And we went through in that month, every single day, like it was like a well, working Continuously retreat. for a month. Continuously. I mean, uh, we met continuously for a month. And we just filled whiteboard after whiteboard after whiteboard examining the problem that we were looking at, examining questions like what were the challenges of Dharma centers in the West? What are the cultural differences between East and West? If you were to try to make a spiritual tradition, like a, a Buddhist path, if you were to give that roots in modern culture, how would you know you'd succeeded? What would be the measures you would look at in 20 years, 50 years, or 100 years to know. So we mapped all this out, and then we wrote it down, or we filled up these whiteboards. We took pictures of all the whiteboards, printed it up, bound it in a little binder. And then the one day came at the end of that month, and I said to Rinpoche, looking at the sort of the scope of the task that, that we had mapped out, 
I said, this is going to take 500 years. It really looked daunting. And he said, no, it'll just take 100 years. <laughs> so put one foot in front of the other and keep going. And essentially, that's what happened. We spent the next six years doing the development work that we had mapped out in that first month. And then we launched Juniper in 2009 with the results of that work. And it was collected in a body of work that we published on our website. And essentially, that, that process just keeps going. So you, you, you lead on a lot of the writing that's on the online. And you're doing all that through that process, that six-year process for you. That's right. That's right. I mean, if you look, for example, if you look online, we have a, a work that's called Awakening the Mind. It's pretty short. It's maybe 20, 25 pages long. And it's our vision for what this path is and can be and should be in, in modern culture. And you could say it took six years to write those 20 pages. But Awakening the Mind is kind of a blueprint for this entire path. It's the tip, the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Uh, and underneath that paper, we have all manner of work and uh, methods and meditations that bring to life the content that's in there. And so it's our task to gradually teach that to people so that they can practice it. But you could read that Awakening the Mind and, and know what this is all about. Yeah, I, I, I must say that I really appreciated the, the writing and the, the, the sort of just the very straightforwardness in which the, the content was presented. Um, it was, I find it quite unusual. I found it quite, uh, A, I found it unusual that to find a Buddhist website where I like the font. <laughs> right. I was like, whoever designed this understands typography. That never happens. <laughs> but, <laughs> Do you know who, I, I, I will tell you something. Although we had a, a wonderful designer in San Francisco that actually did the design work. But the person that actually came up with the idea for the design was Steve Jobs. Really? How did that happen? He, well, he and I remained close friends, sure. uh, even after I left Pixar and, and, and throughout his illness and the like. And uh, he was following the work that I was doing. And I was showing him these ideas that we were having for um, the look that we want, the look, the sensibility of the aesthetic that we wanted to put around it. And, you know, Steve as you can imagine, is very dismissive and very opinionated on this. But, of course, he may have some of the best opinions uh, there were in the world on it. And, you know, he, he, basically, came, he basically said, look, what you, all you really need for this is a, is a beautiful, comfortable color palette and some beautiful topography. You don't need to clutter this with imagery and the like. And there was something that we didn't want to do anyway. So we actually resonated very strongly with that. So that was the gremlin of the idea that, that we then took to our designer who, um, who designed what you see as Juniper. So it's actually all, all quite deliberate. How has your background with uh, big business and obviously notably through Pixar influenced or been relevant in your you're the Juniper startup, as I might call it now, but because um, they're radically different scales of organization. So has there been stuff you've learned that has translated across or has it been a learning and learning again for you? Oh, both. Definitely both. I think that I don't know that I would have been able to do this work had I not had the startup experience in Silicon Valley, where I learned that 
you know, we hear a lot about overnight successes, and it does sometimes happen. But most startups, most great companies, great organizations are the products of long periods of gestation. And, you know, I learned that certainly through my experience at Pixar, you know, which had gestated for a very long time, you know, going back to the early 1980s. Um, um, and then, you know, Toy Story comes out in 1995. This is a long period of gestation. And it's not the only company that that that, that required you know that that kind of time to really discover and learn and become become what it was. So, understanding that really helped me with this. Um, you know, I th- I think that at the end of the day, Juniper wants to bring effectiveness to these methods in our life, in modern life, and so the understanding of what that life is, you know, from from having having lived it before, has been very helpful to me. On the other hand, this is a spiritual path, and in that sense, in that dimension, it is different. It is not corporate. It is definitely something that is to take us beyond that, to almost to sort of find a different way of being, a different way of living. And on that dimension, you know, I've learned a lot. I've learned a tremendous amount. Uh, and and I've changed myself and challenged myself through through studying with Sergey Rinpoche and doing Juniper's work in in many ways. Can I ask a slightly tangential question? I think Sergey Rinpoche's background is that he's Brazilian by birth, um, which for me is I've not I've not heard of many people uh, teaching uh, involved heavily involved in Buddhist teaching from South America. Because normally when we talk about American Buddhism, it's from Florida upwards. Basically, (laughs) so um, and I see from your site that you've done some work in South America. I just, I'm just interested, having knowing nothing about it. um, What's what's the appetite and interest for Buddhism in South America like, based on your experience of that, or your team's experience? Well, before I answer that, let me just make make one comment. We actually don't refer to what we do as American Buddhism. No, yeah, I wouldn't say. Um, you know, and this was very deliberate. If you if you look at our, our website, it says Juniper Buddhist Training for Modern Life. Sure. Nowhere do we say this is Western Buddhism or American Buddhism or contemporary Buddhism, uh, because our take on this is that when we is that you know Buddhism it. It's pure Buddhism. Now, there are many versions of that, of course, in different cultures and different times. But, you know, whenever it takes its form in a new culture, it, it's, it's Buddhism. Um, anyway, that's an aside. Uh, I think that um, there's a lot of interest in Rinpoche's work in, in, in South America and Argentina, actually. So he goes there teaching quite regularly. So my own view has become that there's a lot of interest in this everywhere, uh, because of what it offers, and I think almost wherever he goes, wherever we go, uh, we find you know great interest. Uh, there, there's kind of a, a yearning, if you will, for understanding what this is. So that may be a little broad, but but I but I think there's a lot of interest, and he's certainly become pretty popular down there. <laughs> sure. If you were to do another month-long session in an office somewhere with whiteboards uh, this year, what, what kind of things would be coming up that are different for how, where Juniper wants to go in the future? If we were to do another month-long session, it would now be focused on uh, what it will take to bring this to more people. And so the first session was about, in a sense, the content, the development, what's what movie are we making here? 
you know, and this session would be, okay, we've made this movie. Now, how do we show it to more people? Uh, because we never have an issue. When people find it, they generally will say, hey, I, this, they, they like the movie, um, or you know, at least they're, they're, they're interested in it. Um, and so the next phase would be then, um, what's our, um, you know, how do we get this in more movie theaters? That, that could kind of, so it's a, that's a different class of problem in a way. Sure. Yeah, or challenge, I would say, yeah. So could you say a little bit more about, um, we've heard a bit about how Juniper was set up, but a little bit more about um, Juniper's approach to Buddhism or uh, what's distinctive about its teaching. Oh, yes, absolutely. So I would say that looking back when we started uh, 10 years ago, if I look at the, what we set out to do, we looked at what is it going to take to do this? And there were essentially three parts to that. <laughs> One is that, the first part of that is that we need a path in order to grow inwardly. We need something. Uh, and what we find in the West is that there's this um, tendency to be on sort of one of two ends. Uh, one end, what I would call sort of classic religion, traditional religion. And although, of course, traditional religion is still huge, it is under some siege in the West. And, you know, just last week I was hearing National Public Radio doing a, a series on young people losing their religion. And they were interviewing young people, and for all the sort of obvious reasons, you know, they were saying that they had abandoned their sure. sort of childhood face and this and that. Um, so, but, but certainly religion there is an option, but it, it has its issues. Another side of that is to have nothing at all. So we swing from religion, a totally theistic view of, of the world, to the other extreme, an atheism. We will abandon any notions of religion or, or even spirituality um, at all. And I think what we felt was that though there is something in the middle here that's really important. Uh, uh, you don't have to be in one of those two places to have, you know, th there's a place in the middle where you can have this profound inner transformation in life. But we need a path to do that. And that's where all the work went to bring these Buddhist methods, and then we put it into the Awakening the Mind, uh, which has kind of these four building blocks to this path that we call um, meditation, balancing emotions, cultivating compassion, developing wisdom, and there's a, some other aspects as well. So that was part one of what it would take, was to create that kind of path. Uh, the second part is what I call context, or connection, which means that to us, it's very important to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Uh, it's important to be part of, call it a school, a lineage, a tradition, something that we can say that we are bolted into a source of wisdom and insight so that I can even sit here with you and it's not just me sort of sharing my own particular opinions about, you know, what's spiritual or what's good or what's wrong. It's me in the context of a tradition or a lineage that I have trained in for a long time. And the authenticity that comes with that is really important to us. And we spend a lot of time um, honing and cultivating that. I think that's really interesting because um, uh, lineage is often something that's uh, not spoken about so much nowadays. And so it's, it's refreshing to hear some, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, a relatively new organization really making that front and center. 
we do, and I'll tell you a funny story that illustrates what we mean by it. I, I was actually teaching a meditation a few weeks ago, and a little boy came in with his family. So there was, he must have been seven years old, but a, but a little boy was there. And I was talking about this subject, and I was thinking, gosh, how am I going to make this relevant to a seven-year-old? So then I said, well, have you seen Finding Nemo, <laughs> which is you know, the Pixar's film Finding Nemo? And, and, of course, he had. So I said, okay, so you remember when the two little fish – uh, they, they need to get from one side of the ocean over to the other side of the ocean really quickly, and it's way too far for them to swim. So what they end up doing is they go into this like wormhole in the ocean where these turtles are swimming. This is one of maybe the most famous scene in the whole sure, movie. Sure, yeah, I remember. Uh, it's, the, it's the turtles thing where the two little fish grab onto the turtles, and boy, do they move fast. Well, that kind of wormhole in the ocean, that's lineage. Mm. Because that's a force that you can connect into that will propel you really far, further than you could go if you were swimming by yourself. So all you have to do is, is like get into that path, grab hold of the turtle, and hold on and take that ride. So anyway, that was my metaphor for lineage. So the, anyhow, that was the second part. We need a path. We need this connection or context that we call school yeah. or lineage or whatever we want to call it. And the third part is the accessibility. And the accessibility to these teachings and methods requires a balancing act. Um, on the one hand, for example, we have this great allure in, in, in the West to kind of like, you know, Eastern mysticism and, sure. and, and this kind of thing. And, um, and the, the challenge can be is that if it's too exotic – if it's too far away from us, it stays on the plane of just being an allure, something that we admire from afar, but we don't really know how to make it part of us. So we can't be too exotic. Um, and on the other hand, we need a, a, a language and a structure and a teaching that's consistent with our own knowledge and profile. So we need sort of spiritual teachings, a spiritual way of life that is not an affront to what we're learning in science and other things that sure. can work, you know, hand in hand with it. That is not an affront to our social norms like equality and, um, you know, equal rights for women, uh, you know, equal rights uh, and same-sex marriage and all of that, you know. It has to blend and fit with who we are because this is a path to make us the very best that we can be in our world right here, you know, where, where we're sitting. So our feeling has been, if we can bring those three things together, a path that we could, a connection and a context through a school or a lineage and the right level of accessibility, then individuals will be able to grab hold of this and take it and, and grow. So those are the um, sort of the big, uh, uh, the big picture of sort of how we look at what it is we do. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. 
This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.